Now the next message in this series of messages on divine authority is one in which we look at the characteristics of divine authority. In the last one, we talked about the origin of divine authority in a way to show that the authority that Christ was uh, constituted to bring into the world was from the very foundation of the world. It wasn't an editor or an afterthought. So he was perfectly in line with what was true to tell his disciples that he had all authority in heaven and on earth and that they they could go and present the gospel of his person in whom God was revealed uh, to the whole earth. Now, because we're working with the set pieces of uh, husband and wife, father and son, master and slave, and we're working with this on the basis of uh, the, the, the uh, understanding the delegations of Christ's authority and the functioning of that authority and the inherent comparison to abusive authority and the fact that people are afraid to submit to authority that in their experience collectively historically and personally, has been abusive. Uh, I'm drilling into this thing to make the case for the authority of Christ being plenary, meaning the authority of Christ being original, that it is consistent with who God is, it was designed for the revealing of God and designed to be revealed within the context of the most uh, obvious uh, forms of human authority or human relationships. So today, uh, in this particular broadcast, I want us to look at the characteristics of divine authority. What does it do? How is it? Um, Is it one to be feared? Is it authority that is abusive? Are the requirements of Christ burdensome and onerous or is his yoke in fact easy and his burden light? Does righteousness actually exalt a nation where sin is a reproach to any people? Is is it possible to have a man as a husband who looks like in his representation Uh, in his role as a husband, who looks like Christ? Is it possible to have a woman who in her submission models perfectly the bride of Christ? Will this be light to society, to human society? If God intended light and the light being the revealing of His nature to mankind, and if these are the forms, among other forms, but if these are central forms to the revealing of Christ via 
the grants of delegated authority and the exercise of that authority on behalf of Christ, will this in fact, is this in fact the proper uh, way of perceiving these things and will the promise of the exaltation of nations be sustainable and fulfilled? When we are in Christ, Christ is in us, that the world might see that God loves the world as He has loved Christ and as He has loved us. All these are the relevant questions. You know, this is looking behind the curtain. In the tearing of this veil, we get to see right into the mind of God. These things can only fail if there's a possibility that God will fail. But there is no possibility that God will fail. We might appear foolish to the world who is addicted to uh, authority that they can control, who long for and lust after the control that this form of authority brings. We might look completely foolish to talk about obedience and submission. Then on the other hand, if we are correct, we are the light of the world and God has achieved in us that which He meant to achieve when He said, let there be light and there will be a growing light dispelling the darkness. Ultimately, the light will condemn the darkness. But let's look more intently. Let's look inside the authority of Christ because every authority, every form of authority is in pursuit of goals that the sources of these authorities, sources from which these authorities emanate, hope to establish within their domains. Whether in human terms it's life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness or in divine terms the showing and putting on display the nature of God in all of the relationships. What then are we to expect? When this authority functions, what does it produce? All right? So let's look at, uh, let's look at John, the Gospel of John, because this connects us right back to where we were talking about Christ as the face in which God is seen in the earth, this same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, connecting Christ, the promise of Christ, directly back to uh, the removing of the veil over the the deep and the revealing of the nature of God. So let there be light. I want to read a passage here from the book of John, it'll be a bit lengthy, several verses. In the beginning, so it gets us back to Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So you note it personalizes the Word as a person. All things were made through Him. 
and without him was not any was nothing made that was made if he was not present there would be nothing the earth would be remain without form and void and darkness would remain on the surface of the deep and the activities of the spirit would be he'd hover over the waters but christ the word the word made flesh and none of these are licenses with this passage because verse 11 will say the word became flesh and it's where I'm going. In him was life, note this please, in him, in the word, the incarnate or the the pre-creation reference to Christ, the incarnate word, in him was life and the life was the light of men. What did God say? Let there be light. So the life that would be found in Christ when He would come, when He would be put on display in the earth, that would be light to men. Why? Because it's a standard of God. Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2, the sun is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His Father's being. So Hebrews 1 begins, verse 1, God who used to speak at different times in the past to the fathers by the prophets now speaks to us in Son, who is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His Father's being. The Scriptures interlace and overlay and overlap to present this fourth dimensional picture of the light that God intended when He said, let there be light, to be the incarnate person of Christ. But I'll get into that a little bit more thoroughly in just a moment. So, but in Him is light, life, that life is the light of men, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't figure it out, can't comprehend it because he's not of this world nor it is the dim light of men's intelligence. This is the revealing of God the true light. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now John was not this light, he was only sent uh, to bring reference to the light. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. How many times are we going to hear about Christ as the light? Before we only thought, He is the light of the world, did not connect it to the original promise, let there be light, except that we connected it. We didn't connect it, It, the, the Scriptures connected and it was just simply revealed, this is the connection. Came to bear witness of the light, John did, that all through him might believe. John was not that light but was sent to bear witness of the light. That 
was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. How many times did he say light here? How many times is light associated with the announcement of Jesus? He was in the world, Jesus was, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking in reference to the Jews, the ones who had received the promise first. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become sons of God. Weos is the word here for sons. The weos of God. The fully mature sons of God, like he is the quintessential representation of the Father. To those who believe on his name. Now, when it says he gives the right to become children of God, those who believe, the reason I emphasize the word huias is that there are many words that define the term son. And we'll talk about sonship as one of the set pieces for the manifestation of the authority of Christ. The huias of God here has to do with the fully mature son. So a child is born, according to Isaiah, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The child prophesied to be born was meant to become the son who was given, and there are two different references. A child is never offered as a sacrifice, but a fully mature son is offered to us, even up to and including death on a cross, that we might see how God behaves in every circumstance, even the circumstance that culminates in the end of our lives. Of course, we understand in his case, the culmination of his life in death is to put on display the undiluted love of God in the new commandment and to purchase for us, to purchase as one redeeming slaves by paying a price. Our sin had enslaved us and made us the subjects of death, separation from God. But in the paying of the price, He bought us back from the condemnation of sin and death and made us available to be the sons of God and the heirs of God. Now, let's go on. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God or the sons of God, which is the huios of God, the huios of the Theo, to those who believe. So it's a fully mature, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, so in other words, not of natural heritages, nor of the will of a man, but of God. You see, God intended this outcome 
from the moment he said, let there be light. He sent the light into the world to produce the sons of God by giving life, by putting life into that representational son, which life then would be given as light to rescue men out of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of God. A very very step-by-step process. Now, it goes on and says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So when He was revealed, he re- when His purpose was to reveal the Father, and in revealing the Father, He was revealed with the Father. Therefore, the glory of the Father was also the glory of the Son. Critically important understandings. Why? Because He came to take on the form of a servant, up to and including laying down His life. So submission for Him included death on the cross. His role of representing the Father including, included the sacrifice of His life. So representational authority will consume your life, whether by death on a cross or by preemption of all of your thoughts to the contrary as to how you might live your life. When you give your life to Christ, you no longer possess it. And His will preempts your intentions for how you want to spend your life. So no, no, absolutely not. It is not your best life, now or ever, when you walk with God. It's His life lived in you, however He wishes that should be. So it is the picture of consumeristic folly to suggest that somehow God is bound to fulfill every idiotic desire we have, or even if it's not idiotic, as measured by the idiocy of men. No, 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 no. I object strenuously to the notion that God is obligated to take our wish list and fulfill it. I heard this one preacher one time, made made the saying famous, believe in a God who believes in you. How utterly unfamiliar with God was this preacher. You have to be in order to come up with such idiocy, masquerading as cute theology. No, that's just pop psychology, inventing gods in the images of men. It's nonsense. That's why these gospels do not survive the deaths of their progenitors. 
and rightly so. They're the height of idiocy and folly. No, if you believe that God's duty is to, is to fulfill your wish list, your, best, your idea of your best life, then you're foolish beyond measure and you're following the teachings of a fool. We beheld His glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These words, full, grace, truth, define the characteristics of the authority of Christ, full of grace and truth. Now, full refers to the term of plentitude and it's actually the word pleres, P-L-E-R-E-S, which means replete covered over, complete or full. What does that mean? It means nothing is lacking. Everything that is relevant to life and godliness is contained within the authority of Christ. Why would I want to make such a big deal out of this? Because of the penchant of modern preachers to mix and match. They want their suggestions and God's supply, what I just got through saying. And they will often say that there are gaps, they will imply that there are gaps in the authority of Christ. I remember many years ago when I was still very involved in the kinds of political Christian activities that one fellow told me, he was the local leader of the Right to Life group. He said to me, well, we've got to stand up for the rights of the unborn. Uh, and, and if we don't do it, who will? This is the common argument and it suggests that our political activity supplies something that is lacking in Christ. For he never told us that our, our display of his power has anything to do with protesting anything. You protest things when you lack sufficient power. Otherwise, you just do. There's no need to protest. You do. You do. When you're protesting, you're appealing to a superior power to grant you a concession. Christians ought never to be found protesting. 
appealing to the powers that be for crumbs under the table. That's all you're ever doing, protesting. Anybody who's protesting recognizes a superior authority and they're appealing to that authority and to the conscience of that authority to grant concessions. If you have fullness of power, you simply do. But it would require us to live consistently with what God is calling us to be and to do in order to exercise that power. The moral fiber of the Christian church is hardly distinguishable from the morality of the world. That's why we have to appeal to them. We are not light to them. They don't know how to live because we have failed in the process, alleging at the same time that we are the the representations of Christ. No, we're weaker, disenfranchised perhaps group, appealing to uh, the, the larger society to grant us concessions. It's that simple. No, I can't do anything for God. He's full, full, pleres, of grace and truth. Let me deal first with the the notion of truth. The word truth, and I'll introduce it here at the end of this teaching and continue in the next teaching. I began by introducing it earlier on in, in in this latest series. The word truth objectively signifies the reality lying at the basis of an appearance, the manifested veritable essence of a matter. Therefore, whenever we speak of truth, we're speaking of the person of God in manifestation. It's an incarnation. It's the word aletheia. It relates also uh, to other words like uh, when Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. He's saying, I'm verifying, I'm certifying to you that what I'm saying is true. The word aletose means truly or surely. So when Jesus was saying, verily, verily, he was using the term aletose, which is to say, I'm certifying to you that I am the incarnate truth. Therefore, when it was said of Jesus, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of truth, full of grace and truth. It was speaking of the incarnation of the person of God and is as unerring as God himself is. So truth there is not Bible verses alone. Bible verses may frame the truth in question, but truth walks around on two legs. Truth 
has to be incarnate. God intended it when he said, let there be light. I'll send you a son to make of those who walk in darkness by the renewing of their minds, the lifting of the veil, to make them full of truth, full of my presence. They'll carry my presence in as much as I am in them. And this mandate in carrying his presence absolutely preempts anything like our free will. Whenever we give in to carrying the presence of God, we abandon any claim to being able to exercise our own free will at the time. Once you exercise the will to submit to Christ, everything that you ought to do, be or become has already been determined, foreordained from before the foundations of the world. So truth, full of truth means unerringly connected to the reality of God, not offering his own opinion. So that's why he would say, I only do what I see my father doing. The son can do nothing of himself because he's full of truth. There is no aspect of truth missing from the representation of God in the incarnate person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come back, I'll talk about the characteristic of grace because these are the things that go with the authority of Christ. Nothing is missing, it's full. Truth, the, the absolute accurate depiction in an incarnate form of God and God alone, not a mixture. And then grace, we'll come to that when we come back. I'm Sam Solon, talking about the characteristics of the authority of Christ that you are called to submit to. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.